fellow humans welcome back to discovery debrief a podcast setting a course to discuss the future of the final frontier in star trek picard strange new worlds lower decks discovery and more i'm co-host chris clow and we're running at a slightly lower strength just for the moment we are going to be joined by more members of the discovery debrief panel of star trek franchise explorers but as of right now the only regular member with me is tyler monaghan tyler how you doing I'm doing great, Chris. How are you? I can't, uh, doing all right. Thank you, sir. Um, and we're pleased to be joined once more by Trexpertise's own Kyle Sullivan. Kyle, thanks again for coming back. Niquiloa. Uh, Captain, I'm detecting a pregnant nebula ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you are telling me. Oh, man. We, we're going to talk about that specifically again? in our episode discussion because I think that, that there's – what how how else do I say it? There's more than just one sense of birth or rebirth that comes from that. So we will talk about that. Um, so as I alluded to before, yeah, uh, Rachel will be joining us in progress. Cicero will also be joining us in progress. Uh, both of them have to take care of some things, but we're just going to move right along and uh, and check in with the the two co-hosts that I do have here right now. But so far, so good. We are here to talk about episode four of Star Trek Picard's third season. But before we do that, let's check in with the people who are here. So Ty, um, fill us in on how things are progressing with your watch of DS9. We talked a little bit off mic about some things that Picard has spoiled for you, frankly, but it hasn't dampened your enthusiasm, it sounds like. Yeah, it's been the good kind of spoiler. So the last time that we talked, I was really excited about the perfect timing with some kind of like changeling centric episodes. And I think since then, uh, I've watched maybe like three more uh, and not so much like meaty changeling type of episodes. Um, You know, I would say maybe a slight dip in like the overall quality, not the best of the bunch that we've been watching, not bad episodes or anything like that, but not like just the incredible, you know, nonstop brilliance that was kind of like the first almost like half of season four. But what I want to talk about that's been really cool is we're getting to see the budding friendship between Worf and Odo, which is really exciting because we've seen that alluded to in Picard. But the other thing that you just mentioned that uh, was quote-unquote spoiled by Picard is when Worf is being uh, introduced, or actually I think when he's being recognized by Rafi, right? Uh, He has identified one of his names. uh, You can correct me if that's not who says this, but one of the names that he's recognized by is, uh, or the titles that he's given, is the Slayer of Gowron, right? And I remember Gowron from The Next Generation, and he's been mentioned, he's been name-dropped a few times in DS9 when the kind of political stuff with the Klingons has been going on, and also in relation to the House of Moog, uh, Worf's family. But I would not really be uh, 
you know, attaching any importance to those mentions of Gauron if I did not know that Worf was, in fact, the slayer of Gauron. And so now, when I hear the name Gauron, and I hear about his, uh, you know, direct conflict with Worf's family, basically, uh, like, I'm keyed in, you know, it's exciting. Like, I can feel that something is coming, and I, and, like, I have a feeling it's going to be resolved, like, maybe even this season, maybe the end of this season. But even if it's not, I know it's coming, uh, and I'm really excited to just kind of see uh, this shape up. And it's just like, it's cool, right? Like, you could think of it as a spoiler, but one, we already talked about Deep Space Nine as a 30-year-old show, so it's kind of like, that's on me at this point. But two, <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a spoiler that makes it genuinely more exciting to watch, right? Like, the fate of Gowron ultimately doesn't determine how much I enjoy Deep Space Nine. It's not like, oh, man, I can't enjoy this season at all. I know Gowron dies at the end or anything <laughs> like that. So it's it's been really fun. And again, I'm just like, uh, we're kind of cruising through it. Uh, that like I feel like this has been a slow week with only watching like three episodes. So it's, we're, uh, my wife and I are just, uh, yeah, really pumped to keep going. That's great. Yeah. I mean, I the only thing I'll say is that it might have a little bit of a longer runway than you anticipate. But that's okay. Yeah, I got that sense from Kyle's in your yeah. face, as I was saying, <laughs> my <laughs> prognostication that it might end this season. There are 24 <laughs> episodes a season back then. Yeah, there's so you, you got a lot of episodes to go. But I, I mean, Gowron just as a character, it's so fun to watch all of his evolution from when he first shows up in TNG up through when you see him in DS9 and the really important sort of... Uh, He's he's almost like an inflection for the Klingon political culture, and I know you know there's not a lot of uh, people at least might perceive there not to be a ton of nuance in terms of Klingon politics, but Gowron kind of shows that there is, and um, and maybe how that's a problem, um, but it's it, it'll be really interesting I think for you to to watch that whole thing unfold because it's not just necessarily a conflict between Gowron and the, the house of Moog. It's a conflict between Gowron and other galactic powers, uh, or maybe a lack of a problem between Gowron and some galactic powers too. So please keep us updated. I'll be fascinated to, to see those stories through your eyes. Once you get through those points, because you got a lot of great stuff to come that much. I can assure you some of the best Klingon episodes in the franchise too. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's just incredible the kind of service that that whole society is. And I mean, I think that that's probably something that's true of DS9 at large is the the greater service that is given to sort of the social constructs that govern a lot of these alien cultures within and outside of the Federation. I mean, as a as a poli sci kid, I love that stuff. And then, you know, there's the the metagame of connecting those powers to to world powers in our own uh, on our own mm-hmm. earth, right? And seeing where the parallels are drawn from and there are a lot to be drawn. So, it's again, I envy you for being able to watch the show for the first time. That's that's all I can say. Um, Kyle, what's mm-hmm. on your mind in Trek since we last convened? Uh, I haven't touched anything of trek even the bad voyager novel that i've reluctant to finish um except for <laughs> picard season four i've rewatched the episode i've watched it a total of three times now which is really really weird and rare for me to rewatch things uh so i've been picking it apart absorbing it but apart from that i'm i've been working man sure yeah yeah i heard that um 
in terms of your rewatch of this episode, obviously we'll dive into the specifics of this episode, but is this the first time that you've done that in this era of Trek or is this the first time maybe you've done that enthusiastically in this era of Trek? Yes. Okay. So like uh, for various Trek expertise reasons, the different portions I've watched like discovery and the first Picard seasons, like really a bunch back to back to, to do the work of dissecting it, but that I was, I'm not technically doing that now. So this was pure enjoyment. And yeah, that's, I haven't done that with this newest era of Trek really, mm-hmm. you know, it hadn't occurred to me. I might watch, I'm going to rewatch prodigy at some point, I think, because I really enjoyed that. Um, and this season of Picard, I think, I think, I think it's like grandfathered in or something. It's like the, the next generation movie that we should have gotten. Yeah. You know, and it feels that way. And so, I don't know. I'm excited. I haven't been this excited about Trek in, in years. That's great. That's good to know. Nice. And I mean, just as, as an aside, as also a, a fan of Trek's expertise, I think it might be surprising if you turned that attention to Prodigy, if that was something you were ever willing to do in the future. Definitely. Definitely want to do that. Um, I, I think we've come across a couple of things we want to say about it in particular in terms of form factor and their approach that might be fun to watch as a video essay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. No, I think that there's a lot of room there, uh, definitely. And I think there, there's a lot more meat on that bone than I think people initially gave that show credit for. I mean, you, we all, to varying degrees, have talked about how uh, substantive that show really is. But it's a it's a solid addition to the franchise. I think it's Hell really yeah. safe to say. Yeah. It's so good. It's so good, man. So good. Now, I wish Cicero was here for for this, but you know, we did talk a while ago about like who the hell is the audience for this show. Is that less of a concern from you guys now that you've seen the season in its entirety or is that still something that's kind of up in the air? I I think it's mo- more of a concern. It, to me after finishing it and enjoying it, it's more confusing to me who the target audience is. Mm-hmm. I, sure. I actually feel the same way i initially for our conversations like cicero was, was expressing a great deal of concern and Exasperation. i can say the target audience yes. is us like don't worry about it you know what i mean like it, who cares that it's like it doesn't matter that it's on nickelodeon right like if you want to enjoy it and watch but yeah after after seeing the season i think it melds really really deep and pretty serious themes uh with uh yeah just a a vibe and a tone that is intentional like i I don't know it's it's straddling an interesting line and i think it does it well but yeah i i do feel like it raised questions for me about exactly who the audience was like it feels like it's this very particular like narrow band of like preteen who's almost ready for you know one of the one of the live action shows but needs a an on-ramp but like it's i i don't want to like spoil anything about it but i mean it's heavy like it it has some really heavy stuff in it yeah and if memory serves it is slated to broadcast on nickelodeon but i don't think it's done it yet i think they were actually going to be waiting for the series let me let me double check that so no i think it i think it did start airing on nickelodeon i don't know if the second half of the season did but sometime um yeah not too long ago i think it was maybe even before the second half of it remember there was a long break between like episodes 10 and 11 yeah i think it was even before episode 11 dropped it started airing on nick 
I was way off. It premiered on Nickelodeon on December 17th, which is my birthday, of 2021, before a weekly airing on the channel of the first half of the first season from July 8th to August 5th last year. So I haven't seen anything about performance metrics, but um, I hope it's doing all right. I mean, it's just hard to imagine a show that's aimed at younger audiences or, frankly, at people in our age group that uh, go to broadcast tv now they're not yeah but really like i i I was kind of being tongue-in-cheek the first time i was saying that the audience is us and like i don't have this vast experience with a range of young people in my life right (laughs) but the ones that i do know they consume stuff through streaming platforms not through flipping channels on their like cable service and finding nickelodeon like they're seeking out the shows and clips that they want to watch. So I don't, I don't like know if it really, I don't know what it means. You know what I mean? And, and I don't know how much you could even read into those metrics if they were available about True. how it's doing on Nickelodeon. Right. Like, I, I just don't know. Yeah. It's, it's on a channel. They're keeping track with like marks on a rock, you know, <laughs> we got two views, six <laughs> views and they'll show it to a lizard and that'll be official 20th century, oh. man. Crazy time. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, just like, do they even have the? I, I would imagine that Nielsen has those like people meters that in a sample size of homes, but that just seems so archaic now. I don't know. Yeah. It's it's astonishing to me. Well, um, let's move along. So we do have a whole uh, pretty insane episode to talk about here. So we will begin our discussion of episode four of Star Trek Picard season three. No win scenario. All right. So as usual, the episode summary comes from the fine editors over at Wikipedia who are perfect in condensing these events into digestible conversation chunks for our purposes. And of course, the original summaries are somewhat augmented, no pun intended, by yours truly. So let's begin. We begin five years in the past as Admiral Picard sits down to lunch in 10 Forward Avenue where a group of eager cadets beg the Admiral to recount stories from his career. After offering one up, he urges them to remember that no matter how bleak or unwinnable a situation may seem, as long as they and their crew remain steadfast in their dedication, one was never without hope. So um, a few interesting tidbits from this. Not only do we get to see storyteller Picard again, but we find out that he encountered and beat a Herogen Alpha with the help of Worf, which is cool. But either way, I guess first question, is this a continuity callback or character building moment for what we know will come later in the episode or is it both? Uh, Kyle, why don't you start us off? Uh, Both? Both? Both we haven't seen the guy in like you know a couple decades. It's they've spent a couple of episodes filling in some backstory of what he was doing. He was you know won a poker tournament, vacation on Riza again. You know got kidnapped for nine days by Romulans. I think it's kind of cool because you can spin off and do all kinds of things with that in the novel verse. Uh, but also, how the hell did a Herogen wind up where he was? Did he go there? Did they come back? Is that connected to the Prodigy ship? that's a good question you know yeah Yeah. no i would yeah i'm inclined to agree i mean i i think that as long as it's not something that necessarily calls too much attention to itself it does have a character building moment but um ty what do you think yeah uh 
I guess the connection to the protostar potentially is like super interesting to me. And it's one of the reasons that I love prodigy because it, you know, potentially opens up other avenues, uh, in star Trek. Uh, look guys, I, there's no point in me soft pedaling it. Uh, I hated this aspect of the episode. I was just, I don't know if I just wanted them to let the man eat his lunch, um, <laughs> or what it was, but it was just like this transition from like, Oh no, I could never to like, Oh, okay. Sorry, sir. Well, but, it, but if you're going to twist my arm, then let me tell you this fable about this time that, and the moral of the story is uh, there's always hope if you believe in yourselves and stick to and it's just like uh it did not work for me i don't want to yuck anybody's yums but uh boy it, it all that's all i can say it did not work for me it's because the trek that you're watching right now is on a march to war and you're just in the depths of darkness as you prepare for the impending conflict <laughs> with the dominion that has to be no i mean look i think that that is a fair take. I mean, it is a little on the nose, certainly. Oh, yeah. I guess for, for me, it kind of came together better just because these are character traits of Picard, especially in this show, that have seemed a little diminished over the past couple of years. Like, I know that mm-hmm. they have written these kinds of moments in the first two seasons for him, but for whatever reason, they always kind of struck me as a little overwrought. Like even as someone who was generally enjoying the show as it was coming out with some pretty big caveats across both seasons, um, there was something about the way they were written in those first two seasons that did take me out of it a little bit more. This one felt a little more like coming home, if that makes sense. Yeah, I could see that. He likes to pontificate. This gave him... Mm-hmm. A little bit of a soapbox. Well, since you're asking anyway, uh, my favorite cereal brand is Honeycomb. <laughs> um, the what I don't, what I didn't like about it was how those those these flashbacks do not fit tonally what's 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 happening everywhere else. And last episode, it was very jarring. This episode was less jarring. They, I love the match cut between tones. Picard talking about family and you switch and he's like alone in that room when Riker comes to see him. Like they're playing with it. They're integrating it more in this episode, but I still feel like you could have written the episode without it and it would have Mm -hmm. been okay. It was neat to see, but like it just didn't, I don't know. There's something it's too wholesome. If that makes any sense. (laughs) And his fish got cold. Yeah, boy, did it. It really reminded me of like a video game, like a Mass Effect or something. Yes. um, You're playing the sequel and you don't have a saved game from the first one. And so the way that the developers handled that is they have some NPC come up to you and be like, hey, how was it back on, uh, you know, whatever prime when that Herojin was hunting you? And you have like the options, right? Like you can be like... I slaughtered them all and they deserved it. Or you can, you can like be the moral good. And like, that's what it felt like was these cadets did not like in no universe. These cadets feel like real people to me. Right. Like they were there solely to elicit this exact thing from Picard. And it was just, it was just like, it was like like standing on the street corner in Kansas. It was the whitest thing I ever saw. (laughs) Oh, well I'm Admiral Picard and this is my favorite store on the Citadel. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> ah, yeah. yes. 
I understand completely. Well, let's uh, let, let's move along with the the plot a little bit. So, meanwhile, Vatic, who is now revealed to be a changeling, contacts her superior and is ordered to pursue the Titan at all costs. Doing so in the nebula requires disengagement of the portal technology. So, again, you know, famously, these um, these uh, episode summaries move very very quickly through the events of the episode. I actually kind of did a double take here because I wasn't totally sure if Vatic would end up being a changeling. And I feel like it might've led to more questions than answers, but I'm curious about if, if you guys had any doubts or, or feelings of resolution that came from this revelation. Um, I mean, we, we saw her lop off her arm and that led to this kind of weird quasi like the, <laughs> the deus ex machina matrix revolutions kind of speech from from an apparent superior from this uh founder splinter group uh kyle yeah you, your exasperation please take it i i'm doubtful that she's a changeling i i know it wasn't clear to me what was happening with her hand but if she is a changeling why is she taking humanoid form what do these people care uh, you know, that she's not, the view screen isn't on. If she's trying to hide her identity, what does she care if she's not flopping around like a, like an octopus across the bridge or something like that? Right. <laughs> and why do you need to cut off your arm in order to like engage this thing? Is it like the equivalent of a hand puppet hooked up to a ham radio? Hi, the due date <laughs> is the 21st. Fuck you. Um, you know, like I, I was very, I, I came away with more questions about the logistics of what that was than anything. I don't understand what that, what that was. Yeah. Yeah. But good goopiness again. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I agree with all that completely. I I mean, the changelings that we've seen never have to like take a knife and chop off a part. Like they can just take the form of the thing that they want to take the form of. So I'm not convinced that there's more, there's not more going on there because the mixture of taking that convincing of a human form, but still needing to like manually cut off your hand. And and it, it didn't look like she was in pain, but it did look sort of uncomfortable and certainly inconvenient, I thought. Like Very she inconvenient. Yeah. Shouldn't look to be a fan of the process. So I, I think there could uh, still be a little bit more going on with whether she's actually a changeling or not. But yeah, yeah that voice, <laughs> that face, that was, that, I, I'm like, I, is this just a thing where they're showing off effects or like, should I be trying to read into this? Cause I like, the, my first thought was like, oh man, is this, uh, is Worf somehow playing both sides here? He was, he was handling <laughs> Rafi and he's handling Vatic and he, he's Look, the mastermind of this season, but I, I have no idea what's going on. The, there. the episode was so good that like, I barely noticed this, but these are the questions I have after watching it three times. I also wondered about the hierarchy of the uh, the changeling order. Like, to my impression, and you'll see, Ty, is that it is far more democratic in the Great Link. Uh, this was very, like, commandy, like, very militaristic. And I'd never got that sense from changeling society. And if it's part it felt, of the... I'm sorry. It felt a lot more like the relationship between the founders and or the changelings and the Gemini yeah. are than the... Yes. Sorry to interrupt you, but... No, no, that's exactly where I was going. That's what it felt like. So that to me is the more interesting question. Like, so what is her relationship, Vatic's relationship to the changelings? She's a subordinate, but I don't think, I'm not convinced Mm -hmm. she's exactly, I think she was wearing like part of a changeling or something, a changeling glove. 
See, and I was one of the things that I thought in the moment was that it was just her arm that seemed to be made of changeling, you know, but like how that works is still kind of a mystery. One of the things that honestly uh, also came to my mind, um, the people that work on the Shrike, you know, we can't really tell who or what they are, but we know for a fact that the... Uh, the inbred religious fanaticism of the Jem'Hadar runs so deep that if they see a changeling, that's instant fealty, right? Mm-hmm. And are these Jem'Hadar? Is there a splinter of Jem? Like, how does the Jem'Hadar get divided in the divorce between the founders and the splinter group? I don't think they do. I think they've had to fill those ranks with other people, which is maybe why this is so strange. But also, can you imagine seeing a Jem'Hadar? in this oh, season man. Oh, oh, I would, yeah i i want to cut see, off my own wrist yeah right <laughs> <laughs> I, I would love to see what modern makeup looks like on a gem oh, yes. mm. like, oh and the inevitable interview with the with the makeup designer about well you know we took really close-up pictures of a rhino and it's like oh yeah i mean yeah do, do that stuff that's cool oh no, god I mean, yeah, I, I think that there are a lot of uh, a lot of questions that this creates. And yeah, I do think that her that Vatic's species is potentially still up in the air. It's just such a weird mechanism and it's such a strange thing for a changeling to do. Not saying that they can't do new things with changelings, but mm-hmm. they had to have known that yeah, this is gonna create a lot of questions and mm-hmm. I, I know it's yeah, I think it's a, a new app. It's called uh, Meet Goop, and you wear it on your wrist, and you open it up when you want to talk to someone with your cell phone or something. Meet you know, Goop by Apple, which I think just went under with the the destruction of the Silicon Valley Bank. My shares. Oh no, my Meet Goop shares. I mean, isn't there a company called Goop? Like it's not that hard to imagine that Meat Goop is coming. That's, that's Gwyneth Paltrow, right? Right, I think it is. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Well, Meat financial Goop. governance structure aside, I was I was wondering if it's some kind of like like changeling tech. You know what I mean? Like weaponization yeah. of the the very nature of of the changelings somehow. Yeah, it's yeah. encrypted in the end with meat. <laughs> it's programmable matter but not the good kind like you not the, good kind. the goop kind bio matter oh that's something else well <laughs> let's uh let's move along here so captain Riker informs admiral picard of the titan's situation telling him this is the end my friend Riker describes his feelings about loss as driving a wedge between he and deanna and their daughter kestra with only a few hours of power remaining on the Titan, Riker admits Picard was right uh, to try and attack the ship and suggests he spends his last moments bonding with Jack. Uh, so the thing that kind of jumps out at me at first about this that I'd like to get your perspectives on, um, does this? we talked a lot last week <laughs> about the sort of contrived conflict between Admiral Picard and Captain Riker. Does this sort of moment that they share make up for what we've kind of all felt were the the shortcomings of that conflict or did it strike you guys differently? Ty, what do you think? Uh, no, no, it didn't make up for that at all. You, we still have a lot 
we we've got a ways to go before like right like if we don't make up for that with these two guys you know together again with a couple of other tng crew additions like really out there flying around kicking some ass like it's not going to be a complete you know what i mean like it was a nice moment or whatever but it's still it, it still feels like there's a lot undone and a lot that um i would like to see some of that healing still take place just for me personally yeah yeah and i'm in, i'm inclined to agree with you uh Kyle, does it make it up? Or does it make up for it at all? Did we need that last week's contrived conflict to get this moment of release between the two of them? Last week's contrived conflict was indeed contrived and unnatural. But the way that Riker kind of apologized felt right. Mm-hmm. It felt true to how the two men knew each other and how long they've known each other. You know, and they can have beef. It just didn't feel natural last week. It was a convenient cliffhanger, but like that apology felt good. I'm not sure if it forgives the sin of last week or not, but it felt good and it felt nice. Mm-hmm. It felt nice. I felt like the two of them, I don't know. I want them to get along. It worked for me. And and maybe that's part of it. You know, maybe what went into the writing for this is just like this desire among, I would imagine a majority of the audience to get like a satisfying sort of conclusion for these characters in particular. Um, So maybe that plays into it. I think in the fullness of the season, maybe we'll assess the contrived conflict a little bit differently. Who's to say, maybe not, but um, no, I'm inclined to agree with you. I mean, I don't think that there's anything wrong with uh, desiring a nice outcome between these two characters. They also, uh, so Riker's, state of mind is also revealed a lot more in this episode. Yes. And I think, it, I think it's interesting. He's not quite nihilistic, but like, you know, the death of a son really had an effect on him. And Ty, you were right last week, like to tie it into the, I, it didn't read that way when I was watching it. I think they should have done a stronger job connecting the dots, but it ended up being the case. Um, I wish we had seen his indication of his state of mind outside uh, bef- and before the quote unquote contrived conflict. Then, that would work. Cause in this episode, like, you know, at the end when he's talking to Deanna and whatever, like it's starting to all feel good. It's starting to all feel like a, a character motivation and working. Yeah. It just feels like they put like one fourth of a horse before one eighth of a cart or something. <laughs> yeah. That's a good way of putting it. Well, the, the mindset of Riker is what I wanted to ask about next because his feelings on loss and the emptiness of space it's a very intimate look at not only his mindset, but also how this uh, supposed rift between he and Deanna and his daughter seemed to, to come about. Um, I mean, I've, I've mentioned before that I have a pretty sizable affinity for the character of William Riker. Um, I think that there is a very particular kind of place that he provides in the story of next generation in its totality and a very clear evolution from the guy that we see in season one up through the guy that we see uh, at the end of nemesis and now beyond. Um, There's just something about uh, trying to figure out what kind of a leader that you are that I always really connected to over the course of TNG proper so seeing him in a very different place is a little disorienting 
Um, but also too, like one of the things that is nice about these legacy sequels uh, in Star Trek in particular, and to a lesser degree, some other legacy sequels that we've seen is that they have to acknowledge and incorporate uh, getting older into the kinds of stories that they tell with these longstanding characters. And I think there's a lot of value in that, you know, in, I think on this show before in, in some conversations where we've talked about the, the wrath of Khan, for instance, you know, the, the idea of getting older is central to the journey that Admiral Kirk goes through in that movie in particular. And it's one of the things that in terms of franchise media, Star Trek kind of has a soul claim to, or at least the longest standing claim to you actually see what happens to these characters as they get older. You know, you have these other franchises that take place on things like floating timelines, you know, Batman's always going to be like a 30 year old, uh, all of these, like these franchises, particularly these other media franchises value youth and present their characters in a youthful context, unless they're designed to be, uh, older characters. So seeing that applied here and seeing some, some care applied to the characters as they get older and the things that they have to come to terms with and things that they have to overcome. Um, I actually, you know, from season one of Picard, I wasn't necessarily a fan of the idea that Thaddeus Riker uh, was born and had died. Uh, It seemed like a cynical thing to apply to the characters to sort of force some, uh, some complexity, at least through a kind of a narrow prism. But here there is additional value to it because it's a loss that he wrestles with. And you see, instead of just like being kind of a throwaway line while he's in front of a pizza oven, he's actually describing how he has had to come to terms with what for anybody would be an extraordinarily debilitating loss. So this scene contextualized that a lot for me as someone who's a fan of Riker and as someone who clearly uh, has thought a lot over the years about what's Will Riker up to, you know, I, I, I guess I just appreciated the, the depth that this scene provided, even though it wasn't really all that long of a scene, but um, in terms of the feeling of loss and the emptiness, you know, the spiritual component of characters within the Star Trek universe or multiverse it's kind of glossed over until you get to DS9. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that application strike you guys here? Uh, Ty, why don't you start? Um, yeah, I think the scene, like it, you said it really, really well, Chris. And I think um, everything that you mentioned about how, how it kind of tied together <clears throat> the way Riker was first introduced to us. Um, and it kind of completes Uh, maybe completes is the wrong word, but it does kind of finally feel like we are really watching the same arc of like this guy who shows up on the enterprise and like Picard makes him like manually dock the ship or whatever. And you're like, man, Picard's being a real jerk about this. Right. And like you, but you see Riker grow so much through the next generation. Like when you go back and watch and you see it without the beard, you're like, Oh my gosh, like this, this is a man who's experienced literal baby face many yes. different ways uh the course of the season and, and it does feel like we're picking up that 
you know what I mean, plate that got thrown in the air and has been spinning on its own for like decades now in a really satisfying way. I don't know if I thought this, like I struggled with this episode just in general, and I don't know if this conversation worked as well for me as it did for a, a lot of folks that I've heard uh, discussing it and, and reading about it, but um, I thought it was fine. Um, and I thought uh, it, it, yeah, like, you said it best, Chris, and I'm just going to leave it at that. You 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 expressed it really well. Yeah. Well, thank you. I I, I appreciate that, Ty. Uh, Kyle, how about you? I, I thought it worked well. I thought it was good writing, and only because like the way they set up Thaddeus Riker, as you said, it was a bit of a throwaway line to establish some history that the character's been up to something. Um, but these writers are taking it and using it as fuel to help drive character stuff. Cause of course that would have an effect like in, in the next generation, you know, you watch the transporter chief get vaporized by like a swampy creature on some planet. And like, you go back to work, you're like, that was great. Set a course for blah, blah, blah. And you're like, no, 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 these are people. Right. And sometime like Metallus and the writer room, writer's room, like they, they just got handed season one and season two. What do you do with it? Oh, this is interesting. This is a character thing. How would this affect? I, I liked all that. And it, mm-hmm. for me, it worked really well. I thought I, I loved the way they handled it. I loved the way Jonathan Frakes played it. Yeah. By the end of the episode, it's not, you know, it's not a birthday party with balloons. Like it's subtle. He's coming around subtly. You can see the hints of a of a happier thought, not the full like I've solved this problem, because he's still transitioning. I it worked for me. He's a good actor, man. Jonathan Frakes is surprisingly good. For a guy appearing in a in a t- in a science fiction TV show from the eighties, yeah, yeah, I I agree. Multi talented actor director, big fan. Yeah. He is like he is the rock of this show for me. Like when he is on the screen, you mm-hmm. feel like like they're in control of the show. He's got such a presence. He's got such a way of interacting with other characters and is such a genuine leader in a way that they don't always let Picard be in this show. So in a weird way, like the show that's named Picard, Picard's (laughs) on screen and you have no idea what's going to happen. Riker's on screen and you're like, okay, like we're going like, right. Like we have a direction here. I, I don't know quite how to put words to it, but Riker is, yeah, he's a real stabilizing force in this show for me. I can put words to it. Do you remember the scene when he's talking to Jack in the corridor while Picard was talking to Crusher in the last episode? Riker felt fatherly. Like he felt fatherly. Mm -hmm. The gap in time between us seeing him in Nemesis and now, I think is felt more, most pronouncedly in that moment with Jack Crusher. Mm -hmm. He felt fatherly. And everywhere he's moving around, he's, and this is Jonathan Frakes. This is an actor making a choice. He is carrying that fatherly like component in the character, interacting with with Picard, interacting with the Captain Shaw. Like it's it's all there. I, I love him, man. I think it's cool. And, yeah, and he also provides a kind of surprising opportunity to turn the tables on his mentor to a degree because Jean Luc Picard doesn't really know anything about being a father, and in some very key instances. Over the past couple of episodes, it has been Riker who has helped to guide him closer to that direction. I don't think he's fully ready to, you know, start picking out which Father's Day card he likes the best, 
But I do think that there is a, a lot to be said about, um, you know, the student becoming the teacher, so to speak, even though we're mm -hmm. talking about, you know, a 70 year old man and an 88 year old man <laughs> effectively, but it's still a cool dynamic to see because we have such a longstanding experience with these characters. And back to the whole, yeah, back to that whole uh, arc completion thing, right? Is it is it like Riker's first charge as first officer of the Enterprise to like basically help Picard deal with the fact that there's kids around and yeah, not make yeah. an ass of himself in front of the kids? Hundred, hundred percent. Yeah, and so that yeah really puts a, a like kind of like uh, some almost like a sting behind uh, John Luke Picard's like what could I have been right if you would have given me this opportunity uh, type of thing or or it's full circle Riker's still telling him how to be with children yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean I I just I, I love Jonathan Frakes I love William Riker you know in terms of like role models that demonstrated a positive non-toxic form of masculinity hmm. in comics and cartoons. I had Superman and in live action television, I had Will Riker. So, you know, hmm. it's not bad company to be in. That's at least in, in, in my head. Um, well, let's, let's move along with the plot. So in the holodeck, Picard and Jack tell each other about some of their adventures, but are joined or probably more appropriately interrupted by captain Shaw who bitterly mm -hmm. recounts his experience as a Starfleet engineer during the Battle of Wolf 359, when Picard had been assimilated by the Borg and was attacking the Federation. A uh, rather harrowing story that Shaw told of his survival, where he was uh, one of 10 survivors handpicked on his ship. He was lucky number 10, he said, uh, to get into an escape pod and survive the encounter with Locutus and his Borg cube. So, um, Kyle, you were pretty much right on the money in terms of uh, your absorption of the clues and uh, your assessment of Shaw's distaste for Jean-Luc Picard. We have seen a conversation like this before between Picard and another command officer. Uh, how do you think this one was played? Did you get anything different from this that you maybe did not get in the confrontation or conversation between Cisco and Picard in DS9's first season, first episode? Let's see. Yes. Um, it, 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 they rhyme. Cisco's encounter with Picard very much like this, the same level of not vitriol, but like, you know, Cisco and Shaw are two different dudes, but like the same reasoning. And it makes sense. You kill eleven thousand Starfleet officers and, and enlisted people. You're affecting hundreds of thousands of people. Like Picard is like the hero of the show, blah 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 blah. But he's walking around that reality. Half the time, people are giving him dirty looks. You know what I'm saying? Like that battle of Wolf Three Five Nine is a moment in the Star Trek franchise, and that it doesn't come up more often is simply that you know that we haven't seen Picard enough in this context. I think it's beautiful to add that spice uh, back in. And on top of that, this is uh, such a homage to Jaws. 1975, Steven Spielberg. Like, I didn't see this before, but like Quint, the, the boat captain in Jaws and his USS Indianapolis speech uh, is this speech. In fact, uh, the actor is Robert Shaw from Jaws. Captain Shaw, like it's on the nose, man. And I'm just like, why didn't I see this? Oh, that's uh, cool. A, yeah. The same 
kind of description of the action from way back when and just the this actor is marvelous i really like him the way he pounded on the desk uh or the bar the when he's delivering the lines like i really i loved it i think this is great a great way to mine drama for the show and it's a great way to connect it to picard because only he can be can attract ire like that from that circumstance locutus of borg Dude, he's got to have so many people who hate him to this day. I love that context. Very un-Gene Roddenberry-like, but it makes dramatic sense to me. Sure. Yeah, very well said. Ty, how about you? How did this come together? Uh, yeah, I thought it was a really, you know, it was a strong performance. Like, Shaw's a really interesting character. Um, it's delivered really well. Um I don't know. Maybe I just have a lot of anxiety around like getting interrupted while trying to have a meal or drink or conversation uh, at a place that is called 10 forward in some iteration. But it was like, it, it was like, what are you doing here, bro? Like there, there's a couple of hours left to live. This man is trying to connect with his, you know, his son that he's and like, you're just going to walk in there and start talking about well, Wolf 3, 5. Yeah, man, like it happened. Like this is how you want to spend your last couple of hours is just like sitting at a bar chewing out this old admiral. Yeah, go ahead, Kyle. <laughs> I was going to say, turn that into a question. So how important is it to this character that he spend his last hours? How angry is he? You know, I think I think that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. I've probably said enough about it. It's just uh, <laughs> well, no, I don't. Want, I don't want you to feel like you, you you can't express how this connected with you. I mean, I think that it's a fair perspective. No, I think I've gotten it. Across. I just think, yeah, it's just like I was very just like preoccupied with the inappropriateness of so many of the interactions of this episode that I couldn't hear the words that people were saying because oh. I was like, "What are you doing here?" Right? Like when someone like walks in on my bathroom stall when I'm sitting on the toilet. Like, I don't want to hear what they have to say. Like, you got to go. You know what I mean? And that's how I felt about these cadets. And that's how I felt about Shaw. It was just like, this isn't the time or the place. And like, I don't, it was hard for me to, like, you guys are actually making me appreciate the episode a little more just talking about it. But it was uh, really distracting for me. Fair, Fair enough. Well, Rachel is here. Rachel. Hello. Hey. Hola. Como esta? Uh, está bien. All right. That's all right. See. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <Sí. Yeah. laughs> well, uh, so we're talking about the moment where Picard and Jack are sitting in the holodeck mm-hmm. and in Burst Shaw, mm-hmm. and he clearly has a demon on his back that's mm-hmm. been there for decades. Yeah. What did you make of that moment? Um, well, first of all, I'm glad that Ty alluded to the fact that the cadets talking to Picard in the bar was like really cringe inducing. And like, <laughs> I have a, I have this like such a sensitivity for like secondhand embarrassment. Mm. Like when there's like a situation that I'm watching where the other person should be embarrassed or is embarrassed. Like I feel embarrassed too. And that was just like, setting it off so bad like i was like so embarrassed for those people like i was like no you shouldn't be doing this you should be doing this you should be doing this <laughs> but but for shaw i did not have that because he was like pissed right and so like yeah like he has two hours to live and he's like 
I don't know. There's things in my life that I am so mad about that if I had two hours to live, I think I'd be like, fuck it. I'm going to say what I have to say. And like that catharsis is going to carry me into the afterlife happening. Um, so, so, First of all, Rachel, therapy is good. It works. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's it's good, uh, yeah. Um, but, Second of uh, all, Rachel, I've got a great podcast recommendation for you. It's the first part of this episode when I was talking about how awkward those cats were at lunch <laughs> in the car. Okay, good. I'm so glad that like someone else thought because Chris was like just not <laughs> reacting at all, and I was like, I was like, oh, like swerving in my. Like, like, oh, Look, I, I'm never going to claim that those cadets were three-dimensional people, right? <laughs> I mean, they were effectively non-player no. characters. The story Picard should have told is chasing them down with their cane. Do not interrupt <laughs> haddock time. Haddock is sacred. <laughs> Shut up! <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh. Uh, yeah, right. But, but Shaw, uh, like, I get it. Like, yeah, do it. But also, yes, I mean, Shaw probably should have been getting some PTSD therapy for the Oh, uh, yeah. He needs a counselor. To be what yeah. was alluded to when Vatic mentioned his stability problems, right? But it's also more understandable, too. Like, I don't know if I could necessarily blame him. If I. The, the way that he told the story was so. It was played expertly because you could feel the trauma dripping from every single word of his, you know, the, the anger, the exasperation, the shock and awe of being the, you know, lucky number 10, as he said, um, he doesn't know where to focus that. And all of a sudden the source of all of those issues is on his ship. Like I kind of, no, no, I was I was about to say that maybe I wish that we could have gotten this moment when Picard actually came aboard the ship. But now that I'm thinking about it, that wouldn't be a good idea. I think that this is the right moment for it. But did you get anything from one of the things that I asked earlier um, of Kyle? Did you get anything from this confrontation between Shaw and Picard that you maybe didn't get between Cisco and Picard when they had a very similar conversation? Oh God, I'd have to watch that pilot again. The thing that co- I, the thing is, I just don't remember it that well. Well, that's okay. I mean, um, tell me if you guys agree with this. Benjamin Cisco is clearly a far more stable person than Liam Shaw. E- yeah, no, I agree with that. I th- I really do. The, it's, he probably has it's to keep interesting. Jake, right? So that's a good point. Yeah. With the way that man talks, it's interesting to describe him as more or less stable than anybody because <laughs> Cisco has a, an intonation and a way of delivering lines that is unique. The word that I wrote down was professional. And I think that totally makes sense in the context of, right? Like one of these guys just got assigned to this like new command of a space station. One of them just got his ship like, hijacked and like yeah blown up basically um and i I will say too this also shaw's like he he does explain why picard slash locutus is on another level from your standard board but 
holy cow, Seven having to work with this guy for mm-hmm. however long that it's mm-hmm. been. I mean, that really adds some, like, it, yeah, a little bit of texture to what that relationship must have been like. Wow. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it feels like a spiritual successor to something that I don't think was effectively explored in the first season with like the XB subculture, you know? I mean, Mm -hmm. that seemed like it had such potential to be something way more significant than it actually was over the course of the first season. And now we're seeing it a little bit more in context in a more familiar setting within the, I guess, trappings of a Starfleet command structure. But um i guess ty you mentioned just like the service that was given to the legend of locutus um and i mean not that locutus's story has been an underserved component of jean-luc picard's history but it also i don't know it feels like it's been there's been some like hands off from it too in in succeeding years outside of like some novels or I would imagine I haven't read it, but I would imagine it was a decently sized portion of the autobiography that you read. Yeah. I mean, it certainly wasn't like the most memorable part of it. Sure. Um, like I feel like it was, yeah, it wasn't as big of a part as maybe you would think. That's interesting. Yeah. I don't know. Well, Kyle, what do you think about the, just like sort of the new perceptive canon of Locutus uh, that Shaw sort of lays down in this? Love it. We've done everything we can do with the Borg. The Borg popped up in a moment when we were like really afraid of technology and so much so that we dressed the queen up as a dominant, a weird dominatrix filled with (laughs) technology. But like, (laughs) that's that's past like we're worried about merging with it we're literally merging with it like what else can you do with the borg this is perfect the trauma of of locutus the trauma of what locutus did that's a really because he's a public figure man so to keep this in your head go back to the first season episode where he's being interviewed by the reporter so not only does he have the romulan diaspora sin that the federation couldn't figure out how to deal with but also this like he's a pariah man I think yeah. that's fascinating because that's not at all how the audience is intended to see him. I, I find that juxt- that conflict, that juxtaposition interesting and they're mining it well enough to, to make this show interesting. Yeah. And something that Shaw said as well that I couldn't help, but you know, have my pedantic antennae swing up at was when he said, forget about the stuff that happened on the stargazer. The real Borg is out there still and they know who you are. Mm-hmm. So not as much of a resolution, apparently, of the collective. It's like another sort of offshoot. At least the context clue is that it's another offshoot similar to what we saw from Lore in TNG, right? It's not the real collective. It's something different. Also interesting. Yeah. yeah. I love that. If there's runway with the Borg, there it is. Uh, Ty, any final thoughts from you in terms of Locutus and how that came together in this episode. You you guys have said it really, really well. I will just say this also, I think, does a good job of putting meat on the bones of like Picard's uh, concern or maybe almost preoccupation with his own legacy that's kind of been a theme in this season, mm-hmm. right? It makes so much... To us as TNG viewers, your legacy is intact, sir, right? But <clears throat> when you put yourself in universe, right, 
like Shaw has been talking about him as this running and gunning cowboy type of guy. He's got the Romulan thing, uh, and he's Locutus. Like, yeah, there's it, it. It actually really does make sense why this man would be concerned with his legacy. So I thought that was a cool way to think of it too. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a great way of putting it because it's certainly front and center in his mind. I think is fair to say. Um, well, let's move along. We've only got a couple of uh, plot points remaining. So Riker, Beverly, and Picard form a risky plan to use an energy pulse from the nebula to recharge the ship's systems. Shaw and Seven help them succeed, and Seven identifies and kills the changeling imposter aboard the Titan. So. This just felt like classic Trek teamwork problem solving. You know, in in the moment, it might have felt a little hokey, maybe, but I still kind of loved it. Um, Ty, you you mentioned that there have been some things that have taken you out of the episode. Was this one of them, or how did this connect with you? Oh, no. Suddenly, it became an episode of Strange New Worlds, and it was great, (laughs) and I really enjoyed it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable approximation. Um, Kyle, the return sort of of this sort of this teamwork problem solving uh, hokey or just Star Trek? I thought it felt organic uh, for this episode. My impression of Star Trek as a whole is as an office workplace where everyone's just kind of professional and they get the job done, you know, (laughs) so. And, and a lot of my beef with modern Trek, so to speak, is that it's been kind of log jammed by that. Like I've not seen like in Discovery for all of its, you know, wins. Like I, I just I felt like characters weren't talking to each other when they should have been in the way that you would in a natural office space. And it would have solved so many of their problems like call down to engineering, tell them the bridge is on fire. Oh, that's great. We can solve this problem in 15 seconds and not an hour of drama. Sometimes. I didn't realize how much of a logjam that was until I saw this episode. Hmm. Probably even for the second time, I was like, oh, oh, that's what was missing, you know? <laughs> and in the same, Prodigy has the same thing. Like, the characters took a while for them to get on the same page. And I love that when Picard went to go to Shaw's quarters, like, he used his own language as an entreaty. Like, Picard the diplomat, man, still, yeah. still got it after all these years. Yeah. The thing that arguably has helped to preserve his legacy within and outside of Starfleet is his unmatched diplomatic capability. Uh, maybe, I don't know. We'll see. Uh, Rachel, how about you? Just in terms of like them working together to get over this problem, uh, hokey or Star Trek? Maybe both. Hoke Trek. Hokey Trek. Cue the accordion. <laughs> is a little bit hokey, right? I, I don't know. Like I'm watching TNG at that. That's why I wanted to ask you about that because you're in the middle of TNG's prime, arguably. Yeah. Did this feel naturally descended from that, or did yes. it, it, it? Yeah. 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 I mean, I think especially the like um, the Shaw working on the nacelles and the last minute something bad's going to happen, but then someone steps in. I don't know. That, that felt really good to me. I was really enjoying that. Yeah, yeah. Like if if Picard was in the position that Captain Jellico was in, where he had to take over the ship and convince a first officer that he didn't like to do something for him, this is probably the approach he would have taken. A more diplomatic, generally uh, nicer way of doing things. Still arguably just as effective. 
but um, I guess one of the things that kind of surprised me is that Picard's disarming approach seemed to work pretty well with Shaw. It's almost like the, and I might be reading way too much into this and I might be writing my own script and nobody gives a shit. But the thing that I got from that was that maybe this is something that Shaw has felt like he wanted to put to bed. So when given an opportunity to see that olive branch, he immediately took it, you know, I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Um, maybe, I think maybe he didn't want to die and like, he's in char- <laughs> also fair. Also <laughs> and then he's in charge of his ship and he knows, well, I got to do something, but I, I like the begrudging respect. It makes me wonder if Shaw's of two minds, like he does kind of respect him, but he's also like really pissed at him for, you know, like ruining his life. But like, but he also he's a cool dude and he wants to hang out. You know, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. At some yeah. point, asshole became a substitute for charm. Right. <laughs> yeah, Chris, I, I don't know. I think it's fine to interpret it, you know, like something like that can be an area that's open to interpretation. But like that rings really, really true to me, right? Like you get something out on somebody and then you're kind of hoping they come back to you almost like contrite so that you can right like you can reach down and accept their hand and like and almost be the good guy of your own narrative and like that feels like a place that Shaw you know maybe not is in but could be I think it can be open to interpretation but yeah I like it that works for me yeah sure well um you know the moment here when Seven and Shaw work together to identify and kill the changeling seem to create kind of a new sense of understanding between them how did this moment come together for everyone? Does Shaw finally understand that maybe he was wrong about forcing seven to assume a name she might not have wanted? Am I reading too much into that? Uh, the begrudging teamwork that seemed to give way to a less than begrudging respect. Uh, how does that come together, Rachel? Yeah, I don't think you were reading too much into it. I, I have a feeling that in the next episode, Shaw is going to, or later in the season he's going to show respect to to seven by calling her seven mm-hmm. um so i don't think you were reading in too much into that at all okay cool well maybe these guys think differently uh kyle what do you think i, I think you're right i think the groundwork is laid you could see the contour of where that relationship could go and hopefully they save it for a spinoff because frankly i like the dynamic between shaw and seven i like that it's going to feel good as a viewer when they, when he, when Shaw eventually comes around to respect seven, I think we're going to earn that. Sure. Yeah. Ty, what do you, what do you make of it? No, you're totally wrong, Chris. You're way out. No, ah. I agree with you. I actually, I, yeah, I think you're totally right. I loved that whole, that was a lot of fun when you saw the, the communicator call to Riker, but you didn't get to hear the conversation and you knew they were up to something together. And so to see them, uh, yeah, love it when a plan comes together. It's cool. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a nicely composed set of sequences too, I thought. I mean, just like it did a good job of creating a sense of tension, even though, you know, we probably knew where it was going. That didn't diminish my enjoy, And that's, to me, like that's a benchmark of a well-written scene. Like even if I can predict it, if I don't care, I can predict it. Then yeah, right. That, right. that's a good thing, you know? Yeah. That's yeah. it's twists and turns aren't the point. The point is 
emotion delivery system. Does this feel organic? Do my, am I feeling a thing as an audience? It's all that matters. It's like the movie Castaway, where you know exactly what's going to happen. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. but, but you still, still cry it. when Wilson floats out to sea. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I know it's going to happen when I get on the roller coaster, but I'm still freaking out when I'm on the roller coaster. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's a exactly. Good one. <laughs> well, and these guys too mentioned. Uh, Kyle just watched Master and Commander. Oh, yeah. First yeah I was just saying that I should watch that because someone on Reddit told me. Did you did you say this? I don't know if I said it on my. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Well, someone on Reddit said that Master and Commander is one of the best Star Trek movies. Yeah, <laughs> and I, 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 like, I can second that. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, compositionally speaking, um, you. Kyle, you mentioned emotional delivery system. Is that really the dividing line for you between season three and the first two for this show? Yeah. So uh, that Mando versus Disco essay we did really talked about the form factor that Discovery and Picard were employing. And it isn't alone. There's a lot of different media doing that. And I think that people making these things get kind of caught up in the surprise or the puzzle box or the plot twist. and, And they don't spend enough time with the character and the character motivations. The audience has to feel this stuff. You know, uh, movies are like a giant pile of super arts. You know, you have photo composition, music composition, costuming and cosplay, blocking from theater arts. You have, you know, the camera work and all this stuff is supposed to sing in unison. And it's all supposed to say one thing, an emotion. Do I feel scared? Do I feel happy with these characters? That's it. You know, if you get... If you get too wound up with like, well, maybe the audience knows all about the Andorian, so I'm going to put a Herogen in there. And like, you're, you're getting, you're, you're not going to be able to, you're getting in your own way. And I think that modern Trek kind of has that as an issue and and they sometimes overcome it. Sometimes not this episode. It's perfectly balanced despite the problems. Like when uh, LaForge comes down, the changeling LaForge, you know, you know, Maybe they could have hidden that a little better, but like you don't mind because you're so invested with Shaw and Seven in that moment, not the Changeling. It's perfectly balanced. I haven't seen it like this in a while, man. I w- I told you off 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 air somewhere, Chris, that I thought this was the best hour of Star Trek since 1999. Yeah, yeah, and it says a lot because there's been a lot of hours of Star Trek since. Been a lot then. of hours of Star Trek. Yeah. So no, I think I think that that's uh that's that's well said. Well, um. Let's move along. We've we've only got a couple of points left here. So the Titan damages the Shrike on their way out of the nebula. Uh, Riker threw an asteroid at it in a moment that I thought was just a lot of fun and and, and cool and a nice sort of twist on uh, on the ship throwing moment that we saw a couple of episodes ago. Um, now, with many jellyfish like space creatures, since uh, we didn't really give service to the to the point earlier, but it was indicated that the nebula itself is a life form that was pregnant. So we effectively see the nebula give birth to a bunch of little jellyfish like space life forms. Um, as they warp away, Picard realizes that he briefly met Jack five years earlier and inadvertently dismissed his attempt at connection. So there's a lot here, of course, um, but the immediate thought that I have is, did we just see the beginning of a new life form? You know, um, 
this felt like a cool callback to the way that Star Trek, the motion picture ended. I felt a little bit of a, a camaraderie, let's say between this and galaxy's child, you know, from TNG. Um, in my mind, this is one of the things that really does separate this season from the previous two, because it's leaning into the strangeness, but the wonder that comes from exploration. You know, if I were to try and peg some other recent Star Trek shows to evoke that, I think Strange New Worlds gets the closest, but this to me hit a button that Star Trek should always really try to hit even if it fails as long as it tries i appreciate it and i don't feel like a lot of star trek recently has tried to sort of emphasize that that even in the the trappings and the the terrors and spaces disease and danger and darkness and silence that you can get from some of the stories that are told there is still wonder to be found through exploration, through one of the most noble pursuits that humanity could possibly undertake. And I loved that. What did you guys think of it? Ty, what about you? Did, did you like how this kind of happened secondarily to things in the plot or how did it come together for you? Yeah, it was cool. Like the only thing that was missing was like war for somebody telling them to shoot at the nebula and Picard, being like, no, we shouldn't shoot at the nebula, and then him, <laughs> right. him turning out to be right. Um, it felt, yeah, it felt very. And I think even when they're discussing the idea, like Crusher's assertion that maybe this could be some kind of creature, they relate it to the creature at Farpoint, right? They're like, we've seen this kind of thing before. Um, yeah. So I'm really mi- mining uh, Farpoint tonight, uh, if that's <laughs> not clear. I'm getting a lot of mileage out of that one. Um, but yeah, I loved it. I, the only thing I will say, Chris, uh, in kind of like modern Trek's defense is is Book, I think, was a character that brought this aspect that's of fair. Trek to the forefront really well. It's in mm-hmm. select points in Discovery. I think they tried to do it again with the season that turned out that the bad guys were just really big. And once they just figured out that they were really big, everything was fine. I would like that. If, But anyway, um, yeah, I really thought this, this really brought it back to, yeah, just like a real Trek feeling. And that, that moment when the crew on the bridge can kind of stop and take this like moment of awe and just like seeing these glittering jellyfish floating through space um yeah it's beautiful right like that's that's really getting at the essence of why i watch and love star trek yeah definitely kyle uh you you said the the really big villains you talking about species 10c yeah that sounds right you know they communicated with chemicals or something yeah i I, once they realized that they were accidentally blowing up worlds they apologized and they stopped as you do um, yeah, I love the mystery of that because it, it, 10C felt very Star Trek and this was sort of in keeping with that. Yeah, man, totally, totally. It, it, it felt a little rush, but in retrospect, they were telegraphing this for several episodes. Like there's a biological signal in the nebula, sir. The mm-hmm. captain, the nebula is pregnant. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know, man. I loved it. It was cool. My friend Jay often criticizes Trek and saying, just 
get in a starship and go explore space. And they did. And like, it felt right. Um, I also want to note that um, Riker throwing the asteroid at the ship in an early episode of TNG, when they are encountering something and they can't use their weapons and the, or the weapons are useless. Riker asks his tactical officers like, well, do you have any rocks I can throw at them? <laughs> Finally, they provided. <laughs> hey, uh, he's been waiting for that for like close to forty years at this point, yeah. and he finally got his chance. It's called payoff. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That's a long, it's a long ass payoff. But hey, I'm here for it. How about you, Rachel? Did you like the the, the new life forms emergence in context with everything? Yeah, they're cute. <laughs> and, wait, what what does our daughter say when things are cute? She's like, it's cute. It's cute. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's cute. Um, yeah, they were really cute, and I just like the kind of uh, like overall like lowered stakes of this episode. It was just like, let's just not die. Sure, like it was. Yeah. Um, my favorite stakes yeah i mean lower stakes than like the entire universe is going to like molecularly deconstruct or something um but like like let's let's just find a way to not die and the way that they had to do that was by like understanding a new life in the space yeah. Um, so it was just really nice and sweet and I like it. I agree. Yeah. I think that there's something that's very Star Trekky about like these crew members who are in one moment confronting their death and in another moment realizing why they're out there in the first place. You know, I like that. I like that juxtaposition. A lot of those people might need counseling, but they will get it. <laughs> and you know, at least we could say that for certain about them. But uh, no, I just I thought it was a very evocative Star Trek moment that I was very happy for. Um, well, so the final moment alone, Jack. Oh wait, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I there's a, there's a whole other question I was going to ask you guys. So the moment flashing back to the response that Jack got from Picard and Ten Forward. Um, so this kind of goes back to like the, the idea of legacy that we've talked about and certainly that is looming large in terms of Jean-Luc Picard himself. Knowing what we know about the Admiral's complicated feelings related to, to legacy, he, you know, we, we, he doesn't know who Jack is when Jack asks him, well, didn't you ever want more of a family? And he says something to the effect of Starfleet was the only family I ever needed. Um, was his response a defense mechanism? Do you think he could have responded any differently than he did to a pool of cadets? And um, what value does this scene have, if any, for for you guys? Uh, Ty? Yeah, it's hard to think of a worse context for Jack to have tried to make this context or, or this... <clears throat> sorry. It's hard to think of a worse context for Jack to have tried to make this contact with Picard. Uh, I, not knowing who this person, I, I just don't. Yeah, I've already said my thoughts on the whole interaction with the cadets to begin with, and then to have that interrupted by some guy who, like, dressed up like a chimney sweep and sat by himself at the bar, and then interrupted you across the room and like made all the cadets you're trying to talk to like get out of the way so you could make eye contact with him and be like, "But what about family, sir?" It's like, okay, Holden Caulfield, like, take it easy here. Like I just it 
I just, I'm sorry. I thought it was dumb. <laughs> no, that, that, that's okay. Uh, Kyle, how about you? How does that come together for you? Uh, mixed feelings. I thought that the Picard's response was a defense mechanism. I thought it was good dramatic moment for his position about this issue. But I also agree with Ty in that like this flashback thing, stop it. You you can do yeah. that. I think you could have done this in a different way and still get the same ideas across. Mm-hmm. But you know, it w- is it a defense mechanism of Picard's? Probably, I think so. Is it a matter of pride? I mean, I think he was sort of covering up for the fact that he didn't need a family, and he feels right. like he does. And maybe that's too on the nose mm-hmm. or something. I like that. It should have couched it in a different scene or something. Mm-hmm. Sure, Rachel, you. Uh have a lot of Picard family history at your fingertips and you know about how complicated his own feelings are about what he's leaving behind. Did you interpret that as a defense mechanism, how he responded to Jack? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I just think it's totally different. Like what else are you supposed to say in that context? And I feel like, I guess like, like I've never had to, I've never tried to surreptitiously contact my estranged father <laughs> in a public place, but I'm um, like, show up at a waffle like, house. Hey, Hey, are <laughs> <laughs> you said you don't have a family? You owe um, me child support, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 33 years of bad childhood. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> not funny, but a little bit funny. Uh, yeah, no. Um, so I just like, I don't feel like you should, I'm like, Jack, you probably shouldn't take that super seriously. I think I said that aloud. I was like, don't take that seriously, man. But like, I, I guess maybe you would, I don't know, like maybe you would feel that, but it's just, I, I, I like, I feel like if you have any context for how human beings behave is that if they're like telling stories to a bunch of like young cadets that they're not gonna be like I am really sad that I am the last Picard and like like there, there's just no way you're gonna say that and we know that he is really sad that he's the last Picard and uh, I personally just like physically hate that his uh nephew died mm. um and yeah. mostly for for most of my life i have uh, just decided that it didn't happen um <laughs> you know it's not real so i can <laughs> like i can make my own well, the good news is that he's not related to picards anymore like he's like data's second cousin once removed now right, right? yeah <laughs> sure right um but but yeah so yeah i think it was what else are you going to say to a bunch of cadets there? But mm-hmm. I also Jack maybe shouldn't take, I don't know, maybe take what he's saying in that context with a grain of salt, buddy. And maybe he's going to have the chance to do that in the fullness of the season. Right. But maybe not. I mean, seems like he might kind of hold a grudge, but, uh, and we certainly know that captain Shaw can hold one for a long time. So the capacity is, could be there for Jack, but, Yeah, I mean, I like that there is additional service given to Picard's insecurity related to his family. Um, And I think I like the intent of this scene more than I like its execution. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but it, it, it is kind of a strange note to end on that is only slightly undercut by the idea that, well, the story's not over yet. You know, we got more to more to come and maybe this will pay off in a way that we can't quite foresee now. I'm open to that possibility, but I probably would have preferred to see it play out a little differently. This this might be me connecting my own dots a little bit, but um, I know obviously like the question right about family, we're thinking like a spouse and children and things like that, but parents are also family, right? And so for somebody to be confronted with this question in a public place by a bunch of students who know his personal history, right? The places his mind may have jumped to being asked about family might not even be right entirely what we're thinking. It might have also jumped to a place of thinking about his mother and father, which is something he definitely would not want to get into a discussion about in that setting, right? So the just the whole topic of family kind of uh, both ways, so to speak, for Picard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point. All right, well, we got one last thing to talk about. Alone, Jack has vivid hallucinations of a destroyed world and a voice saying, find me. Only question I have, what the hell was this? Does anybody have any ideas? Anybody want to throw something out there? Vodic talking to him, right? Was it Vodic? That's what I felt like it was. I don't know if I picked up on that. It sounded like it to me, but... I don't know. It just we'll find out. It just sounded like a voice. I didn't connect it to anybody, but yeah, Jatvash. That's all I Ooh. got. You oh know. god! My wife's been right about everything about this show. That, that's what she said. So I'm gonna <laughs> go ahead. And, Wait, just like uh, just like Riker thinking about his son when he was making the decisions about you know whether to run or fight. That was not actually my idea. That was my wonderful wife, Julia, idea, Julia's idea. So, uh, you know, I'm going to jump on that bandwagon with her. Mm-hmm. Some kind of Jafash connection. Wait, what, what, remind me what that is. <laughs> oh, you know, it's like the Romulans. The Luddites. Secret, uh, like they have the vision about the world. Yeah. Apocalypse. Oh, uh, season one. All right. Sure. Uh, oh, that, that would be fun considering that his daddy is now a, a toaster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. They were radicalized, right? Against artificial life. Because, right, that was the reason for the apocalypse in their horrifying visions, right? Was right. synthetic life. Right. Yeah, it's those evil centipedes are coming back. Damn it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I wonder if this is tied to uh, the vision that Jack seemed to have that he saw seven speaking to him in. I mean, it has to be, I would imagine mm-hmm. my hypothesis at that time was that, you know, we're bringing in changelings. Why aren't we bringing in the prophets? Um, but I don't, or, or the wormhole aliens, whatever you want to call them. Um, but now that just seems like too far left a field. Um, it doesn't seem like there's enough, uh, potential service to go in that direction. So I got nothing. I got nothing. It, it's really hard. It, it, it's so out of, it didn't connect with anything obviously yet. Yeah. Uh, my only guess is that there's something wrong with them. Like the reason he's being hunted down is because he has something somebody needs and maybe mm-hmm. it's also killing him. And boy, that might force Picard into a corner, won't it? Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're telling me. 
Well, that's that's pretty much the entirety of the episode. But as usual, we do have something else that we got to talk about. It's pedantic continuity time. <laughs> All right. There's actually several notes uh, for this episode. I was kind of surprised that the last couple have been reasonably light. But this, of course, comes from the fine editors over at Memory Alpha. While discussing how to root out a changeling, Captain Shaw hands Seven a pad that includes an image of Odo, which was nice to see. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, yeah, I, I did that too. Um, I, honestly, I was a little surprised that there seems to be such commonality in changeling receptacles. But that's okay. <laughs> I wondered about that too. Yeah, right. I mean, it's just, it seemed because I was my impression from Odo was just like, well, that's my bucket. You know, it's just like it's a thing he picked yeah. out to to rest in. But did apparently, he tell that change, like, did he get it from the Great Link? That like that's maybe the- <laughs> like, when they get out of the Great Link, there's like a shelf with buckets, and they just grab a bucket and go. Wait, doesn't grab he, a bucket he got, like, and a, get off the planet. Didn't he get like a nicer bucket as like a gift or something from someone? Like, isn't he encouraged to upgrade it at some point, like to something a little bit nicer? <laughs> I don't and, remember. Like, the the thing on the pad was like a dossier about the bucket. Like Odo yeah. was like a he was, you know what I mean? he was like a footnote. Like Odo's bucket company. had a Wikipedia page. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. And a fun fact For that other I other uses see Odo's bucket disambiguation. I, yeah. I think Rene Aubergenois said in the What We Left Behind documentary that Odo's bucket served as the wastebasket in his office, which I thought oh, was that's kind perfect. of perfect. Isn't that kind of a fun? Can, can you imagine Worf gets to the station and he's just meeting Odo and it's like he has to take a gift to his place? Like, what do I get him? Get him a bucket, dude. A bucket? Trust me, he's going to love that. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't there an episode two of DS9 where he came to view his bucket kind of as a symbol of oppression or am I conjuring that? I can't remember. I need to watch that show again. Oh no, I need to watch DS9 again. Oh, how terrible. Terrible fate that has befallen me. Um, well, moving along to, to pedantic continuity time for Memory Alpha, like Argelius 2, the system's fourth planet, Argelius 4 was also home to alluring women. All right. That's classic Star Trek trope. Uh, Liam Shaw reveals that he was present at the Battle of Wolf 359, and as was the case with Benjamin Sisko, this was the cause of his deep-rooted dislike for Picard. Shaw also reveals that he's from Chicago, Illinois. The actor who plays Shaw, Todd Stashwick, is from Chicago as well. Kind of a nice little... So represent Ty, huh? Hey, forget about it. Chicago, <laughs> Windy City. <laughs> exactly. Um, Picard recalls Farpoint Station when referencing the Enterprise D's past encounter with space vessel life forms. The star date given in Picard's Admiral's Log, 78183.10, helps roughly date the episode as taking place 37 years post encounter at Farpoint. So that's how much time has appeared to have passed wow. uh, in the, so it's a little bit more than the amount of time that has really passed between encounter at Farpoint and March of 2023. But that's uh it's just kind of an interesting note. Um, the changeling posing as Ensign Foster becomes the second changeling embedded with humans to die this season. It's further revealed that their pursuer Vatic is to a changeling, although memory alpha editors, do we know that for sure? As we already talked about, 
We'll see. I think uh, we I think we got to put a pin in that. Uh, the changeling bucket discovered hidden behind a lighting fixture is a visual callback to the overloading phaser in Captain Kirk's quarters found behind a red alert indicator during the events of The Conscience of the King, the famous TOS episode that introduced Governor Kodos and the mass execution at Tarsus IV. Uh, personal favorite of mine. This episode addresses the reason for holodecks containing independent power cells first referenced during the macrovirus outbreak on the USS Voyager in the episode Macrocosm. Previously, holodecks had been tied to the ship's main power supply and were shut down by the computer during emergencies, as we saw in the TNG episode Booby Trap. This was also the first episode in the series in which a star date was given. So there is an, uh, an additional layer of returning consistency that uh, Strange New Worlds certainly abandoned, which is kind of funny to watch, but it's still a little sticks in my craw a little bit as a Michael Okuda disciple. Uh, but Picard also recalls his encounter with the Temerians in Darmok, though he erroneously refers to them as Telerians, which we could probably just chalk up to age, I would think. But Cognitive decline. <laughs> or, you know, neural net malfunction. Neural net malfunction. Yeah, we'll, we'll leave it at that. All right. Well, um, Kyle, thanks again for joining us. Please Certainly. remind our Discovery Debrief listeners where they can find you and your work. Uh, com or screendoorpictures.com. And I'd like to formally refer to the Changeling Splinter Group as the Bucket Brigade. <laughs> <laughs> we'll retroactively apply that to this episode. Yeah. yeah. That is the hashtag for today's episode. <laughs> hashtag bucket brigade. Uh, well, much appreciated. Ty, any final parting thoughts before we dismiss? Uh, no, just that I feel so fortunate to uh, be at a time when Trek is experiencing such a resurgence. I'm watching it at this weirdly, bizarrely, perfectly coincidental time along with Deep Space Nine. And I don't know where Cicero is, but uh, that notwithstanding, I have such a wonderful group of people uh, to just gab about it with every week. Uh, and that is you all. So uh, thanks. That's it. Well, we're very happy to have you. Thank you for the kind words. We're, we're very pleased to have you join us on this weekly journey. Rachel, any final thoughts? and engage <laughs> engage all right well that's going to do it for episode number 88 of discovery debrief we hope you enjoyed the show and if you did please like and follow us on our social media channels if you'd be so kind we'd also appreciate it if you wrote a review for the show wherever you found it it only takes a minute and let us know you wrote one and we'll be happy to read your review on the air when it's posted if you have any questions you can follow the show on twitter at dsc debrief and feel free to send us questions through twitter or by emailing us at hailingfrequencies at discoverydebrief.com. Please be sure to set your courses for this feed for future episodes, and be sure to join us next time as we discuss the next adventure of our friends from the Enterprise D&E. Very sorry that Cicero couldn't join us tonight, but uh, we will do our best to rectify that next week. But as always, until we meet again, please go boldly, my friends. Mm-hmm.